Hello, welcome to 1823 Podcast. This is where we have interesting conversations with interesting people at Liverpool John Moores University. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith. This is episode four. We're marking the 50th anniversary of the iconic Earthrise image, and we're asking, is it the most important photograph ever taken? We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. To be the first people to see the whole Earth in one go must have been absolutely astonishing. The, the idea that the Earth is a single thing is quite difficult to get, a, get your head around. Seeing it as this small ball in space must have been an amazing experience. To actually see the Earth there in space on its own, it can't fail to show you that we are in this together and we're, we're part of a, an entire Earth that's kind of there on its own that we've got to look after. It's kind of magical, isn't it? It, it makes you try and imagine the, the hugeness of everything. I mean, it's a beautiful image, but it's also it's provocative. It's um, getting you to think about why we're here and the size of the universe and where we fit into that. This is 1823 Podcast. On the 21st of December 1968, Apollo 8 blasted off from Cape Kennedy in Florida. It was to be the first manned mission to leave Earth's orbit and travel nearly a quarter of a million miles across space to orbit the moon ten times before returning home. A giant leap towards achieving NASA's ultimate goal, as set out by President Kennedy, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. On the fourth day of the mission, astronaut Bill Anders took a photograph of something never seen before by humans, the sight of the planet Earth in its entirety emerging from beyond the horizon of another celestial body, Earthrise. It's become one of the most iconic images of the last century and has been credited with changing our perception of our own planet and our attitude towards the environment. In this episode, we'll explore the significance of the photograph on its 50th anniversary, its impact on the environmental movement, and we'll discuss some of the other most influential photographs ever taken. My first guest is Andy Newsom, a professor of astronomy, education and engagement at LJMU's Astrophysics Research Institute, and he's also the director of the National Schools Observatory. Andy, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. My Before pleasure. we discuss the Earthrise image itself, let's just put it into context. What were NASA's objectives with the Apollo 8 mission? There were several, really, but the main one was, can they go to the moon, orbit the moon, and come back again? It was as simple as that. While they were there, they were going to do various tests and take photographs of possible actual landing sites and so on. But the big challenge was, can you get people to the moon, go around the moon, and come back? That's it. Each previous manned mission had all taken place within Earth's orbit. How big a challenge was it to actually leave and, and move out into space towards the moon? It's, it's a massive change. I mean, Earth orbit is scratching the skin of the Earth. It really is very close, and the moon is significantly further away than that. But it was also a challenge because um, previously the idea had been you send an unmanned mission first, check everything works, and then you send the manned one. And the unmanned one had failed um, in several different ways. So they hadn't done that test so this was the first time that um, the Americans had sent something around the moon, essentially. And that increased the challenges quite significantly. Yeah, and NASA were really up against the clock here with this mission and with the wider Apollo program as well. Uh, let's just remind ourselves of the challenge that was set by President Kennedy. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out 
of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. That was President Kennedy addressing a joint session of Congress in May 1961. And that deadline was non-negotiable, wasn't it, Andy? There was no question, even after Kennedy had died, of of that slipping into 1970 or even later. No, absolutely not. That... It had to be done by then. I mean, a lot of the decisions that were made during the, the Apollo program would not have been made without that deadline, definitely. And it, I guess it's difficult for us all this time later to appreciate the political importance of fulfilling that deadline as well and, and beating the Russians to the moon. I mean, it, it's difficult to comprehend how vital it was that America achieved that. Oh, and I think it's worth noting that, that Kennedy's election platform was, we're going to do this before the Soviet Union. That was it. I mean, there were other aspects to it, but that was a key part of it. So if he didn't, he had failed as a president, and anybody who followed had failed with his legacy. So that, that's why it was so important. And when he set that challenge in 1961, what would the reaction have been within the space community? Was, was that achievable in their eyes at that point? I think a lot of people thought it wasn't. Um, it certainly wasn't achievable safely. I think that was the, the big change in, in the attitude that NASA had to take. Before that, I think... The death of an astronaut, the death of a test pilot, was a very serious issue. Mm. After that, it became a significant inconvenience, I think, rather than a major problem. I think a lot of the things that went on in the Apollo program, where astronauts did die, um, there would have been normally many years delay before they did anything else, and they just kept going because they didn't have any choice because of that deadline. Well, we see that, don't we? January 67, three astronauts die on the launch pad not even a flight in a, a test on the launch pad, three die in a fire. But within two years, we're orbiting the moon, and only another, what, eight months later, we're actually on the moon as well. Absolutely. Incredible timescales. Absolutely. I mean, even Apollo 8 itself, um, I mean, it was brought up to an earlier launch because the uh, lunar module itself wasn't ready for testing, so they swapped a couple of launches over. But, as I said, the, the test launch, um, the unmanned test launch, had failed. It hadn't gone to the moon. And it's unimaginable now that you would then send a manned one without doing another unmanned test. But they didn't have the time. They had no choice on this. Apollo 8 has become such a, an important mission within the grand scheme of things because it achieved so many things for the first time. Absolutely. The, the list of firsts is, is ridiculous. You know, the, the first time um, entering the gravitational influence of another body, the first time orbiting uh, another celestial body, the furthest humans have ever been from the Earth, the fastest humans have ever travelled with respect to the Earth, and the first ever known example of space sickness, which is not one that they're particularly proud of, but at least it's in there. So there's so many different firsts in this, yeah. Yeah, and then it was on the fourth orbit of the Moon that the crew see the planet Earth emerging from behind the Moon. Uh, Bill Anders takes three photographs of Earthrise, one of which becomes the iconic image that we all know so well today. I mean, how do we even begin to sum up what that must have been like for, for them to see it and then for the world to see the photograph afterwards? Absolutely. It's, it's very easy to become blasé now because we're so used to seeing images of the Earth from space and, and even from greater distances than that. But to be the first people to see the whole Earth in one go must have been absolutely astonishing. The, the idea that the Earth is a single thing is quite difficult to get, a, get your head around. You know, we're so used to it taking a long time to move around the Earth. The Earth is huge. Seeing it as this small ball in space must have been an amazing experience. And was that significant in, in developing the idea of Spaceship Earth as well and our perception of us actually, you know, this, this vulnerable dot floating through space? Oh, I think so. I, I think before that, it was very easy to think of the Earth as a large number of different things all kind of loosely stuck together. But when you've got a single object floating in space surrounded by blackness... 
it's going to change how you look at it. It's going to be, look a lot more vulnerable. It's going to look a lot more coherent as an object. You know, one side of the Earth is very close to the other side of the Earth when you're in space, and so changes on one side affect the other side in a way that becomes a lot more immediate. For all of the incredible technical triumphs of Apollo 8, I think in popular culture, Earthrise has become the thing that almost defines it, along with perhaps the crew reading from the Bible on Christmas Eve as well, and those things make it very relatable to the layperson, don't they? Absolutely. Yes, I I think that is important. Um, I mean, the thing about the Apollo missions isn't really the technology. Um, It's about the people who went and the people who came back and the way it affected them and the way they talked about it afterwards. I think that's the most profound effect it's had on future generations. You know, live television broadcasts from space and so on meant it became very immediate for a very, very large number of people. Apollo 8 was a triumph overall, but it wasn't all smooth running, was it, Andy? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, the first time you do something, things go wrong, but the number of things that went wrong was, I think, quite scary. Um, even silly things, like, you know, when they're uh, about to transfer from the Earth to, to the Moon, they've got to measure the position of the, the craft, and they didn't have our modern technique, so they used a sextant, which is great. But to use a sextant, you have to be able to see the stars, and they were still in the cloud of, of debris left by the, um, the, the launch vehicle, and they couldn't make the stars out. And so there was a long delay while they worked out how to move away from this cloud of debris. You know, um, Again, on the way back, um, they were, had a little bit of spare time and were sort of doing extra manoeuvres to fix the position with various stars. And Lovell actually managed to accidentally delete part of the memory of the computer, and suddenly the craft didn't know where it was anymore. Um, and they had to reprogram in the position using calculations from, from mission control and so on. That actually turned out to be a positive thing because he had to do the same thing under slightly more intensive circumstances um, on a later mission, um, which actually ended up saving quite a, lot, quite a lot of astronauts' lives. So in a sense, it was a dry run, but it was an accidental dry run. Hmm. Interesting, actually, that you mentioned Jim Lovell and Apollo 13, which he later commanded, because I guess one other potential link between 8 and 13 is that Eight travelled without the lunar module, which actually was the thing that saved Lovell and his crewmates on Apollo 13 because it allowed them to, um, to to live in there on the journey back. So, it, you know, the mind boggles of what could have happened on Apollo 8 if, if the same incident had happened there. Absolutely, particularly as the reason that Apollo 8 went early was because the lunar module wasn't ready. It wasn't safe to put into space. So, yeah, it's... It, with hindsight, um, you have to admire these astronauts to even getting into one of these craft at any point at all, because they must have realised there was a significant chance that they were not coming back every single time. So 50 years after this incredible photograph was taken from lunar orbit, uh, capturing images in space is such a a key part of what you do with the National Schools Observatory. That's a fantastic opportunity for schools, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we We can't see the Earth because we're on it, but we can see pretty much anything else out there, and it's a way of exploring space. It's not just about pictures. It's about seeing what's out there and being able to make measurements and being able to actually do science using technology that... The, the Apollo astronauts would have been astonished by it. And it's an opportunity to, to harness that enthusiasm that young people have for space exploration as well, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, everybody loves space, um, and this is particularly true of, of younger people. And that enthusiasm keeps going. They don't lose that. Um, and we can use that to harness a, a sort of more general enthusiasm for science and technology and engineering and so on as a whole, because it all comes together. You know, you can't do any of this stuff that we do to, to understand space without advanced technology, without advanced mathematics and computing and so on. So it all comes together and allows us and the school pupils to really understand what's going on out there.
Okay. Thanks, Andy. That's um, Professor Andy Newsom. And if you want to find out a little bit more about the National Schools Observatory, you can do so by visiting schoolsobservatory.org. 1823 podcast. Over the last 50 years, Earthrise has become one of the most reproduced images in history. It's been described as the most influential environmental photograph ever taken and credited with helping to start the environmental movement. How big a role has it played in changing our appreciation and understanding of our own planet? I'm joined now by Dr Laura Edwards, a senior lecturer in unmanned aerial vehicle technology at LJMU. Um, Hi Laura, before we talk about the impact of Earthrise more generally, just tell me a little bit about what impression it's made on you personally. Um, Well, I mean, I... My area of research is satellite remote sensing and the thing that really inspired me to get into that area of research was seeing images such as Earthrise. Um, I did an oceanography undergraduate degree and then went on and did a master's in ocean remote sensing, having just done one module in my undergraduate degree on satellite remote sensing where we learnt about sort of the first artificial satellite that went into space, Sputnik, in 1957. We learnt about the various um, weather-observing satellites that went up in the 60s, early to mid-60s, and then all these new sort of Earth-observing satellites that went up in the 70s, which have allowed us to learn so much about the Earth. And it's images such as Earthrise that have really... I don't know, captured my imagination. I think it's it's hard to believe that it wouldn't capture anyone else's imagination too. That is quite a striking image, especially when you think about sort of the background to that image and what people had seen before as well. So it's a pretty special image. Mm. And your expertise in remote sensing, in, in satellite observations, there's a link there, isn't there, with Earthrise in the sense that we've learnt more about our planet the further we've moved away from it. Yes, that's true. And actually, with the Earthrise image, I mean, it was actually kind of the first real colour image that we had of the Earth um, from space. We had some grainy sort of black and white images, I think, in the mid-60s from unmanned probes going up into space. But that's the first kind of, you know, clear image of the Earth with the kind of um, lunar surface in the foreground as well. It's, It's pretty striking. How limited was our understanding of the planet Earth before Earthrise, before satellite observations? You know, what what did this give us? I think there was a lot of research going on on the Earth and things like studying, you know, our atmosphere and our oceans and our land surfaces. But the main focus of that was on small sort of field work um, experiments, not this kind of larger scale picture of the Earth. We know it from space. Um, And with something like Earthrise and all the satellites that were going up in the 60s and the 70s, we've had this opportunity to obtain information about our planet, which otherwise would not be possible. Um, You know, the expense of putting satellites up is phenomenal, but to get the same spatial coverage and the repeatability of that coverage of the Earth that you get from satellites would be just impossible to do um, from fieldwork. So it's, it's presented an amazing opportunity. And we now have data that goes back, you know, five decades pretty mm. much from satellites, um, telling us lots of information about the Earth. 
when Time magazine selected its list of the most influential photographs of all time, Earthrise was one of them, it described the photograph as the precise instant that humanity truly grasped the beauty, fragility and loneliness of our world. Do you go along with that? Do you, do you think it really changed attitudes towards the environment and towards our home? Yes, I don't, I don't see how it could not have changed attitudes. Um, you know, if you think about prior to the 60s, sort of back in the 50s and before that, there wasn't a huge amount of international travel. People, you know, heard about news stories around the world from TV and radio, but, you know, there was probably much more a focus on what's happening in the UK for us, what's happening locally, um, in terms of um, sort of environmental issues and things like that. You'd hear perhaps about hurricanes and things like that on the news when you get into the um, sort of 60s and you start having the weather satellites. But to actually see the Earth mm. there in space on its own, you know, from that viewpoint, I think it can't fail to, you know, show you where we are and we're how kind of you know, that we are in this together and we're, we're part of a, an entire Earth that's kind of there on its own, that we've got to look after, I guess. Do you think we would have the kind of awareness that we have now and how important it is on the agenda to look after the planet if we hadn't had those kind of images? Um, I think, going back to what I said about the satellites and their potential to give us so much information, sort of in large large scale and over long periods of time without that I don't think environmental science would be as far as it as it is today I think don't think we would know as much about man-made climate change as we know today um, and it, without that ability to gather that data and analyze it over long periods of time you know the science would not have gone forward we would not be at the stage we are where we're having reports sort of detailing to us what the scientists believe we need to do to protect our planet and a lot of that data comes from satellites and the ability of these big sort of organizations space agencies to put these satellites up into orbit depend on the public being supportive and I think images like Earthrise sort of help with that kind of support for you know, missions to into space and satellites going up into space. Yeah, and this period of time saw a number of key developments in environmental awareness. Within a 10-year period, we have the Silent Spring book by Rachel Carson, which is, which is credited with raising awareness. We have the Earthrise picture in 68. Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth are launched in 1971, and then a year later, the UK and the US established their environmental departments. So there was clearly a, a real shift in attitude over quite a short period of time. Yeah, and, and a lot of that will be down to the data we were getting in from satellites. I mean, satellites allow us to look at all parts of the Earth. We can look at the temperature of the oceans. We can look at receding of glaciers. We can look at the movement of the Antarctic ice sheet, the way the ice moves. Um, and, you know, observe the phenomena such as the El Nino Southern Oscillation. You can see a distinct warming of the ocean surface from the west of west coast of South America which is related to the El Nino Southern Oscillation and that 
that has impacts for the people that live on the west coast of South America in terms of their fishing because the sea temperature changes that affects um, their fishing what where the fish migrate to because they have a certain range of temperatures they live in so these it's not just talking about the kind of global environment as a whole the anthropogenic change but these kind of cyclical events that occur on our earth and how they influence us. How useful can satellite imagery be in monitoring the consequences of human behaviour on earth? I think they can be extremely useful. I mean if you take an example of our sort of attitude to clothing these days, um, very much we're um, a throwaway culture. We buy clothes, wear them once, maybe just pass them on after that, go to landfill, whatever. And actually, if you look at cotton production, it requires a huge amount of water. Um, and there's an area um, called the Aral Sea near um, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan area. And over sort of the last few decades, that sort of lake has, it used to be sort of the fourth largest inland sea or something and over decades that has declined due to water going to growing cotton um, and it's almost it's almost gone now that lake and the communities that surround that lake were dependent on it for fishing um, it influenced their climate it was such a large lake that it kind of gave a moderate climate to the area um, but now that it's receded back they have sort of harsh winters and very dry summers. So it's had a huge impact on that culture and that just comes down to growing cotton. So, um, and you can see that from space, the decline of that lake from space. It's phenomenal, our impact on uh, forest areas, deforestation can be seen from satellites. So there's numerous ways that we can use satellites to see how we're impacting the, the planet and ultimately the climate as well. Okay, and just to bring us back to our question at the very top, I'll put you on the spot. Is it the most influential photograph ever taken? I would say it's got to be up there, definitely. Um, yeah, I think for me, yes. Um, you know, other people may have different opinions, but certainly from a, a satellite remote sensing person, <laughs> it's definitely the most influential for me. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Laura. That's Dr. Laura Edwards, a senior lecturer in unmanned aerial vehicle technology at LJMU. This is 1823 Podcast. We've discussed the Earthrise photograph from the perspective of astrophysics and the environment, but what about its artistic merits? As we've heard, it's a hugely significant image, but is it a great photograph? Are there any other photographs which might be considered to be as important and influential as Earthrise? To discuss that, I'm joined now by Mark Provins, a photographer and a lecturer at LJMU School of Art and Design. Hi, Mark. Hi. And I know Earthrise is a picture that has made a big impression on you. Yes. So, um, yeah, strangely, I when I was growing up, I had a, um, a dilapidated shed that was like my den, and um, I had two two pictures on the wall in that shed, which I must have inherited from my dad, I guess, or, you know, he, he gave them to me. Um, and one was Earthrise, and um, so I kind of lived with that uh, through my childhood. And the other was uh, a picture of, a real close-up of the moon surface, mm. um, pot-marked and, uh, uh, you know, really, like you don't see it um, if you just look up at the sky real close-up. Um, so, yeah, so that's, so that's part of my childhood, and maybe 
partly um, might have influenced me becoming a photographer possibly and um, certainly in terms of uh, having an interest in space science and, um, and things like sci-fi as well I think that really fed into, into that, um, that, that kind of situation yeah. uh, What was it about Earthrise that appealed to you? Uh, it's kind of magical, isn't it? It's um, it makes you try and imagine the the hugeness of everything. I mean, it's a beautiful image, but it's also it's provocative. Uh, it's just getting you to think about why we're here and the uh, the size of the universe and where we fit into that. I guess so. Yeah, it's instilled from childhood, yeah. and it's become an iconic image because of what it represents and what it symbolises. But what about it artistically? Is it, in inverted commas, a good photograph? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. It's, so it's lit by the sun, which, if you think about the history of photography, most pictures, if they're outside, were lit by the sun. It's, so it's lit by the same, same source. It's quite interesting in terms of composition, especially if you think that it wasn't taken by a photographer. It was taken by an astronaut, so they weren't necessarily thinking about composition. Um, if you think about the rules of photography, um, it's, uh, it fits with the rule of thirds. So often when you're learning about photography, you're encouraged to kind of superimpose a, a grid, um, a three by three, three horizontal, three vertical um, cells over a picture. And if elements of the picture fit into that, it's meant to be a better picture. Personally, I, I don't like those kind of rules, um, but it fits very well so it's quite comfortable to look at the um, the moon at the bottom feels like the, the um, one third of the picture and uh, the the earth where it's positioned fits into you know quite quite comfortably into another cell up there so mm. yeah so in terms of composition and lighting it's um, yeah technically you could say it's it's a very good picture mm. and it's got the contrast as well which has made yeah. it so important of the the vibrant colors of the earth against the blackness of space and the the real greyness of the moon as well. Yeah, I think the size of the Earth, you know, it's all that negative space, all that black around it makes it look really vulnerable and um, insignificant in some ways. And and like you say, the colour is really important. Um, when, it, that, when that picture was taken, people were used to looking at photographs in black and white snapshots or um, art pictures were mostly black and white. Um, so I think seeing it through the eyes of somebody in 1968 would be very different to looking at it now you know they'd be quite uh, surprised by that color and um and and it hadn't been seen like that before so yeah significant mm. yeah. and the first of this series of photographs by bill anders was in black and white because that's the film he had in the camera at the time he asked jim lovell to find some color film in the spacecraft and then takes further pictures with it one of which becomes the image that we're talking about now and is so well known. Uh, this wouldn't have had the impact, would it, if it had been in black and white? No, I, I think, um, you know, we know now the impact that it's, it's had um, in terms of um, changing attitudes and, and almost like a wake-up call. You know, this is our, our planet and it looks, um, you know, uh, valuable or vulnerable. And um, uh, I think, yeah, in black and white, you just don't get that same sense. You view it quite differently. So, yeah, the, the, the greens and the blues, um, yeah, very important. Yeah. Mm. And it's interesting that this photograph wasn't actually planned. They had a photography schedule on the mission. They were taking photos of the lunar surface for potential future landing sites, but they weren't scheduled to take photographs looking the other way back at the Earth. And this, I guess, presents itself as an opportunity too good to miss. Is that 
the essence of photography to capture that spontaneous, unexpected moment? Uh, yes, it, well, it's certainly part of uh, the photography world. There's so many... Photography means so many different things to different people. Um, but, um, but, yeah, certainly um, one approach to photography is, uh, is the decisive moment where you're kind of waiting for everything to line up in just the right way. Um, and um, Henry Cartier-Bresson wrote about this and talked about this, this idea of the decisive moment where um, literally the, the elements arrange themselves just perfectly and the photographer is there in just the right moment to press the shutter and to capture and freeze that moment because, of course, um, when you're looking at things, you, you can't freeze them. Time keeps moving. So whenever we look at a photograph, we're always looking at the past. We're looking at something that's happened already. Um, and, yeah, so for a lot of photographers, that decisive moment, trying to press the shutter at just the mini second that everything aligns is, is what they strive for, yeah. Hmm. How has photography evolved to get us to the point whereby it, it shapes our recollection of specific events like Earthrise and other key moments in history? Well, I mean, obviously we live in an age where everybody takes photographs and everything is, is heavily documented. Um, but you can't always plan a picture that's going to stick in people's minds um, or, or a picture that's going to change people's attitudes. But um, that, that just seems to happen quite um, naturally or by chance. So if you think about uh, 9-11, something that um, lots of us... Uh, lived through and remember obviously we probably watched um, moving image pictures at the time of of that unfolding and that happening and we we kind of remember that experience Um, but when you mention it um, I think lots of people probably um, remember the the picture of the falling man which um, Mm. so so although you know that that doesn't change anybody's attitude to that um, event it's a it is a way of remembering it and it's a kind of iconic picture um, for all sorts of reasons um, it's very it's actually a very calm picture in the middle of something horrendous and dramatic um, that the falling man looks calm um, almost like he's posing or um, dancing or you know holding a particular um, position um, frozen against the architecture, you know, the, the buildings that are no longer there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that picture is, I mean, it's been shared widely in um, media and, and, and that's probably why it becomes sort of, you know, a, a memory for us, a shared memory that, um, that we recall when we think about that event, possibly. Mm. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's other photographs which are uh, actually significant because they've changed people's attitudes. Um, so I think of the picture of um, Princess Diana meeting people with AIDS and you, you see the sort of sincerity and the warmth in her face and the fact that she has no fear meeting these people at a time where um, people were paralysed by fear and thought that, you know, but just by meeting or shaking hands with somebody, touching them, um, you, could, you could get AIDS. Um, and so she really broke taboos and she changed the way people thought overnight I think I think that's a really significant Mm. thing and she did something similar with landmines as well 
Mm. And we will we'll put some links to these photographs on the on the notes on ljmu.ac.uk slash podcast where you can have a look at some of these images or or type in the search terms as well to have a look. Are there any other images that you'd pick out as, as um, being similar to Earthrise in the sense of changing how we think about a particular subject? Yeah, I, so another one um, is the pictures of a dead um, Syrian child being washed up mm. um, on a beach, uh, really heart-wrenching. And um, directly before that, the sort of, well, the British press, um, especially the tabloids, were being quite um, hostile um, to the idea of you know people coming into Europe. And once that picture had, had hit the media, everything changed. Um, the headlines were much more sympathetic and kinder than they had been. Um, there was a real shift, really, in in how the media were portraying that, presumably in tune with how people were were thinking about it. So, you know, that that's a, a, a big shifter. And are there any other photographs in the context of Earthrise that you think people should go away and have a look at? Um, yeah. So I so when you asked me to talk about Earthrise, I did try and think about um, images that that did the same thing, and it's actually really hard to find anything that operates on quite the same level. I think the nearest I've managed to come to is... There's another another photographer um, who connected, I would say, art and science um, called Harold Edgerton. And, you know, he was an inventor um, who used photography to document what he was doing. And I think if you Google him, you'll probably recognise some of the pictures that he's taken in the past. But the, the one that I thought was a really nice kind of um, fit with, with Earthrise um, is a picture of uh, a milk drop being frozen. Um, uh, so you kind of see the splash of the milk drop and it's separating. So instead of us looking back at the, the Earth, which is a huge entity looking small, we're looking at something small that actually looks big in the, in the picture. Um, so it, it, you know, it's 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 really a picture about how the universe operates in many ways, and it was groundbreaking. Nobody done this before when he did this in the fifties, um, and uh, he had to sort of develop the technology to to freeze that moment. So I think, uh, yeah, it's a, a good picture to look at. And even though it's the nineteen fifties, it's also in color and it's very strong colors. Um, so yeah, so uh, Harold Edgerton. Uh, it's called Milk Drop Coronet. Mm-hmm. Uh, good one to search out. Okay, thank you, Mark. That's Mark Provins from the Liverpool School of Art and Design. And don't forget, you can find links to each of the photographs that we've discussed in our show notes for this episode at ljmu.ac.uk slash podcast. We'll end this episode in a moment with the Christmas message from the Apollo 8 crew. Before that, let me thank all of our guests on this episode, Mark Provins, Dr. Laura Edwards and Professor Andy Newsom. This episode was produced by Michael Humphreys, edited by Ben Jones, and our artwork is by Ryan James. Thanks to you for listening. Please check out some of our other episodes, and we'll leave you now with the words of the Apollo 8 crew as they orbited the moon on Christmas Eve 1968. From the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth.